All right, good morning, church. We're going to go into scripture reading. We've got two passages today. Uh, the first is in 1 Corinthians 13. The second one is going to be in Galatians 5. So if you would like to turn, flip, scroll, what have you, to uh, 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to read verses 4 through 8a. First Corinthians 13, four. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And then we'll go to Galatians 5, starting in verse 18 and go into verse 26. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Amen. Thanks, Becca. Hey, everybody. We have this saying in um, production meetings. I'm gonna, Nicole, I'm going to tell them the saying. Um, it's called, you got to wear the dress. You know what I mean? You got to wear the dress. And I'm really bad at that. Um, not for obvious reasons, but um, what, the, what it means is like when you have an idea you're trying to communicate, you have to like really use that idea when you try to communicate. Otherwise, why did you come up with ideas, right? It's kind of like if you're going to a cocktail party and you pick out this dress, because it's going to be awesome, it's going to look awesome, you've got to wear the dress. You can't get there and then you put your sweater on and take your heels off. You've got to wear it, you know what I mean? So I, I struggle with this, like the, we do art and stuff like that, and then I, like, I talk about something else. Um, and so I'm, gonna, I'm trying to, like when I talk about love and what's, what's going on with our cultural idea of it, it makes me want to become a philosopher for three hours and hope that you'll stay. Um, so I'm trying to switch into like clarity pastor mode here, um, which is hard for me. Um, if you're watching here or online, there's going to be ask me anything at the end. And so I'm going to, I'm going to just fly over a bunch of stuff at 20,000 feet. And so that's your opportunity to write in questions. And, um, and I'll talk a little bit more about it. Now, 
Um, this morning we're going to talk about love. The, the series that we're doing right now called Unbrandable is meant to be cumulative, not just topical. So the reason I talked about glory last week because it was because it was the most foundational idea. The second most foundational idea is love. Right? You have to understand that God reveals himself as glorious in a way that is also shrouded. And you have to be able to interact with the way he does and doesn't reveal himself in order to see who he really is, and that the way he does and doesn't reveal himself is a revelation in itself about what he's like and what he's doing and how he's redeeming humanity and saving us. Secondly, it comes from something in his character which we call love and which he enjoins on us. Love is what theologians call a communicable attribute. It's a way we can be like God, right? So God has incommunicable attributes, ways we can't be like him, like his infinity, right? And then there's other ways in which we are like him, like we—he's given us the capacity to love. He loves, we can love. Difference in quality, but not difference in kind. Does that make sense? And so as we work through this, um, then we'll break down love. Next week I'm going to talk about meekness and how—why that doesn't brand. I'll be talking about martyrdom. Why that? The heart of full sacrifice and surrender to God doesn't brand well. We'll talk about fellowship and what it means to belong to each other in Christ as the family of God and the institutions related to that and why that's hard to brand, right? And also his revelation, like how he speaks to us through written word and all that kind of stuff. Now, um, the, the thing we came up for this, like the poster is because you're already perfect. Relative to love, there are lots of cultural heresies. There are not just there's not just this kind of cultural heresy. There's lots of cultural heresies surrounding love. But one of the things they end up amounting to is the idea that um, love should be structured in such a way in which I am not confronted. Love should be structured in a way in which you're loyal to me. It should be structured in a way in which I'm affirmed by you. It should be structured in a way in which I'm even adored by you. But it should not be structured in a way in which I am hurt by you, where I am affronted by you, where I am called on to be changed by you. Does that make sense? I don't, I don't want that to be part of love. That's not what I'm looking for. And if God's rule about love is to love others as you would be loved, and I want to be loved by being affirmed, right, that means that you should love me by affirming me, right? Now, the result of this, when it comes in contact with human nature, which is very self-justifying, is we want the kind of love where it's really just us look, looking in the mirror, I just want you to mirror back to me what I want to be and what I want to say I am and how I want to feel. And then you just tell me that's fantastic. And then that'll produce love. And um, if you want to call love that, I mean, I can't stop you. But that's not what love has ever meant. And so Christians have tried to adjust this by adding helpful adjectives like holy love to give it a certain kind of character. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in particular, like, selects a specific word to apply to this concept of Christian love. So you, you might hear heard Christians say the word, you know, agape love, right? Which is technically li linguistically redundant. Agape means love. So when you say agape love, you say love. You're saying love, love. But the reason why Christians say that is because in the Greek language, there were a number of words for love. There was storge for like natural affection within families or mothers for children. There was eros, which is like romantic sexual love. There is phileo, which is kind of like friendship, companionship, shared duty kind of love. And then there was agapao, which is like sacrificial, self-giving kind of love. And so the Apostle Paul really keyed on that word and used it more and more in his writings to help Christians realize that there was a character to love in Christian faith that was fundamentally different. Which, but th then that leads to like all kinds of other 
issues in how we think about this. Because Protestants, especially Protestants of the evangelical and charismatic traditions, of which we are part of it in High Point Church, we tend to think of supernat- the supernatural realities of God as opposed to nature, right? Because the word the Bible uses for sin, indwelling sin is the flesh, right? So that makes sense. You're like, so there's God's spirit, God's spiritual, and then we're like, we're fleshly, right? Which is kind of natural or the creation. And so there's this like, there's this like, spirit and flesh are kind of opposed to each other, and spirit has to win over flesh. If flesh means indwelling sin, then yes. But when flesh means the natural realities of creation, that we're embodies, that we're physical creatures as well as spiritual creatures, then it doesn't mean that, right? In that realm, Catholic moral theology has done better by saying that grace, that is the work of God spiritually, perfects nature and makes it supernatural. The reason why this is important is I've heard Christians kind of get caught by non-Christians saying, okay, wait, if you say that Christian love is this like supernatural, powerful thing, are you essentially saying that non-Christians can't love? Have you ever been caught on the horns of that one? Right? Are you saying non-Christians can't love? Right? And the answer is, of course, like if you've been paying attention, the answer is yes and no. Right? Love as a natural reality of storge, eros, and Phileo, right? Natural affection between mother and child. Um, filial affection between friends given to a common duty and purpose. And eros, the romantic love in which people come together romantically and create offspring, so to speak, right? Not so to speak, literally, right? Those are all natural loves. You actually don't need supernatural intervention in order to engage in those natural affections, right? And so therefore, can non-Christians love? The answer is, in those categories, as human love goes, of course they can, right? And sometimes it, it looks like and is significantly better than those who are self-labeled as Christians, right? What Christian faith teaches, though, is that the flesh, that is indwelling sin, spoils those loves and diminishes them and confuses them. Does that make sense? And there is a certain quality and type of love that is the full, effluent, life-giving love of God, which requires nothing in return. It comes from no lacking in itself, and it is poured out for the others without fear of its own future. We'll get to that in three weeks when we talk about martyrdom, right? A heart coming from that place toward others that is not possible without a grounding of universal, supernatural hope that is given in the proof and promise of the resurrection. Does that make sense? And only with—and so, you're like, well, can non-Christians do that? Non-Christians can simulate it. There's a way in which you can psychologically work on yourself to achieve a psychological state of transcendence through things like meditation, where you can act like you have that hope. Does that make sense? You can, like, you can achieve that mental state. The problem is, it's not rooted in the fact that God has promised you resurrection, that you will live forever, that there's nothing behind it other than your just self-abnegation, which is not Christian. God, God doesn't want us to give up ourselves. He wants us to, in giving ourselves to each other, become ourselves and become His. And so, when so, so you can create that psychological process, but something incredibly important to our humanity is lost when we do it. Even though it's an incredible achievement when people can exert that kind of like inner strength and self-discipline through meditation, do that kind of thing, right? Now, what we need to recognize is that as Christians, love coming from the center of God's character is not going to be brandable. It's never going to reduce to these kinds of aphorisms, these kinds of slogans, like, 
I can receive love because I'm already perfect. Like you, you can affirm me, I can affirm you. Love is affirmation. It's never going to reduce to that. It's never going to work. And when we come up with slogans like that to reduce love to things that are usable for us, not only are they going to be too reduced, but they're also going to be in accordance with the tastes of the flesh in us. And so they're going to actually produce really bad ends, right? Um, I have no doubt that when people in the period of disestablishment in the 60s and 70s were trying to like transgressively break up all the norms around families and sexuality and gender and race, that they were trying to do a really good thing. And in a lot of ways, they did do a really good thing, right? Like a lot of the, a lot of the, the transgressive things around race were incredibly important. So the problem is, is that Satan isn't so much concerned with the good we're pursuing, but with how he can, in our pursuit of it, completely follow it up and give us something worse than there was before, right? So he's perfectly fine with us going after something good. He's just like, okay, just how can I make this even worse? And so one of the things that, that's happened is, is that as we have tried to pursue love through transgression against the institutions that controlled and protected love for thousands of years in human history, is we have produced a love that has produced an increasing amount of cruelty, not a lessening of cruelty. We've definitely produced a love that has increased the amount of abandonment. We've produced a love that has increased the amount of loneliness. We've produced a love that has increased the amount of anxiety. We've created a love that has increased the amount of self-hatred. One uh, um, youth researcher put out his findings a few years ago in a book, and when he was searching for a title for the book, he just picked the word hurt. Because as he, as he studied the post-millennial two generations, the, the, the controlling, gathering adjective of all that he was learning about kids of that age who were emerging into adulthood was hurt. That they had been hurt. They felt hurt. They felt like they had been damaged. They felt like they weren't cared for. They felt like they'd been abandoned. They felt like they hadn't been guided well. They felt like richest kids in the history of the world. Most free kids in the history of the world. Most invested in kids in the history of the world. Right? And what they felt as the <laughs> predominant adjective describing how they felt about life was they'd been hurt. Now, are they just babies? You know, I'm 43, so there's got to be some of that. I definitely think so. Right? But not, not as much as we wish we could say. Right? So Christians have to start with this baseline. Holy love just doesn't brand. It's not going to brand. It's going to be more complicated— and it's going to be less like our tastes. And so there's a number of ways that you can say, like you can define love. One way to define holy love would be like this. Holy love is beautiful devotion to the good of another shaped by the holiness and will of God. That would be a more complete Christian definition. Be the holy love is beautiful devotion to the good of another shaped by the holiness and will of God. Now you can take—now here's the thing. Christians believe that truth is truth. We don't believe that there is Christian truth that is different from all other truth. When we say Christian truth, when I say that, what I mean is some of you aren't Christians and you don't already believe what I'm saying. So I'm going to tell you what Christians believe first, and then I'm going to say that I think you should believe it too because it's true for all of us. So I can say this is, the, this is Christian truth, but, but I don't believe that there's such a thing as holy love. I think there's just love. I think love is always holy. You shouldn't need the adjective if you understand what love is, right? So love is simply, and I don't have to say beautiful devotion, because if devotion is constrained by holy love and rooted in the will and character of God, and it's for the true good of another, I don't have to say it's beautiful devotion. The devotion will be beautiful, right? We don't need that adjective. And then I could say, 
I don't have to say the will and character of God because we know the will and character of God reveal the truth about how persons should relate to each other. So all I have to say is the word true. The true good. The true good is that which proceeds from God's will and character because God only wills that which is true, good, and beautiful. Literally says that in Romans 12, that when we are transformed by the renewing of our mind in the mind of Christ, we'll be able to approve God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Right? And love has to be towards another person, or we're just playing games, right? So it's towards another. So the Christian truth, which is true for everybody, can simply be stated in non-religious terms this way. Love is devotion to the true good of another. The problem is, is that that's not a brand. Because the brand is simplified. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that. And if we all read it together, all of our tuitions, intuitions will tell us the same thing and we'll get that. The problem is that's not a brand. That's a catechism. Right? If you grew up, maybe if you grew up Lutheran and you had to memorize some of the shorter catechism, why do, you, why do kids have to memorize the shorter catechism? And the answer is, it's a simplified statement that you get taught about how it expands. So by memorizing the one sentence, you remember the three paragraphs, which reminds you of the five chapters, which reminds you the whole body of truth that you're believing. It's a simplified statement that leads you back to the complexity of the thing that you learned about. That's not a brand. You can't just read that on the basis of your intuition. What's wrong with most of our views of love is because we think of love as predominantly a feeling of self-expression, our emotional thinking about it seems like it's good enough because we're thinking about an emotion. So when we think emotionally about it, we don't go, oh, that's dumb. I shouldn't think so emotionally about this. I wouldn't do that about geometry, right? But because we think of love as an emotion, we believe our emotional and intuitional thinking about it, and we don't think, oh, this is probably totally wrong. This is probably way more simplified than it really is, and it's probably totally dictated by my flesh and selfishness. And so our own hypocrisy can just pass in front of our eyes, and we don't even pay any attention to it. Now, um, so I want to look at two things really quickly. One is, is that love is complex. It's as complex as God's character. When Scripture says God is love, that doesn't simplify things. Because Scripture nowhere says love is God. It says God is love, right? Which means God embodies what love is. But it also means that because God embodies what love is, love could be as complex as God. And love isn't God. You can't reverse the statement. Similarly, um, love is as pure as God's will in its passion, in its devotion. And when God says things like, um, love, love is you want to be loved, what we call the golden rule, that's not a summary of the meaning of love. It's an attack on your personal emotions and hypocrisy. That was, when, when Jesus said, love others as you wish to be loved, he was not saying, if you just think of that, that summarizes love, you don't need to know anything else about love. Because if you have a crappy view of how to love yourself— and then you inflict that through your own transference psychologically on other people, you're going to love them in terrible ways too. You're going to love yourself terribly. You're going to love them terribly. You're going to invite them to love you terribly. It's just going to be a positive feedback loop of territability. TM, I just trademarked that word, right? All that means is when Jesus says, love others as you wish to be loved, what he's, what he's saying nicely is, and you don't, won't, and will not. And that must be faced. Right? Okay, let's do the first one first. Love is as complex as God's character. If you think about this a little bit, um, love is 
people sometimes say, have you, have you heard people say, what is love? Is love an emotion? Is love a commitment? Right? And the answer is yes, because it's a virtue. Because love is a virtue, a strength of character, it will always produce commitment and action that is in keeping with that strength and virtue. It will also produce the appropriate provident emotion that goes with the virtue. You will always feel, if you are truly virtuous, you will feel what's right. And you'll have a passion for what's right, and your desires will be more and more ordered to what's right. So you'll have an internal, profound, meaningful, joy-filled, stirred. You won't be emotionally dead. You'll be passionate, and you'll also act in accord with the truth because you have a virtue, right? Um, there's this place in 1 Corinthians 13 where the Apostle Paul says, If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, and I have not love, I gain nothing. Now what that means is, is that love can't be just action. So he's saying, he's saying, look, if, I, if I'm totally in, in, in self-abnegation of my wealth, I give every, every dime I have to the poor, which is an act of love, right? There's no question that's an act of love. He's like, but there's something that if this thing I'm calling love in this context isn't in me, even if I do that action, I don't have love, and I'm nothing. And he's saying, even if I sacrifice myself as a martyr— so do you see how he's like, like, he's attacking both Republicans and Democrats, right? Like, if you're a bleeding heart liberal, and you're like, we should give everything away, he's like, that doesn't mean you're loving. And if you're like a, a Republican, you're like, I love the military, and like, giving your life on the battlefield is like the greatest possible, like, gift to other men and women so that they can have freedom, right? You surrender your body to the flames of war, even. In this case, it means persecution. But you see the parallel? right? He's like, in either case, if I don't have the virtue that Scripture calls love that is wrapped up in the will and character of God, I'm nothing. I have nothing. I gain nothing. So we better be careful, right? Um, one of the things that Scripture demonstrates, it shows us more than it tells us, is that God believes what he calls love is compatible with all his other behaviors and actions and teachings. So he believes whatever love is, is compatible with mandates and commissions, with commands, blessings, and punishments, with the need of forgiveness of redemption, with reaching and redeeming our enemies, all those kinds of things. So you see, if love is you just telling me what I want to hear, if love is affirmation, how could but God behave this way? He's telling us what to do. He's telling us not what to do. He's showing his wrath when we do what we're not supposed to do. He blesses us when we— but all the, You could not, if you If you believe the simplistic idea of love, nothing God does makes any sense. Now, here's the problem. For too many Christians, when they read about what God is actually like, they pick their view of love over God's expression of what love must mean. So they, they look at what God does and they go, oh, God must not be loving. I guess I can't believe in him. Rather than saying, oh, my definition of love is really screwed up. Right? Do you see how this gets back to last week when we talked about, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me? Right? God continually makes these statements that either you have to believe him and, and assume that something you believe is totally wrong, and you've got to walk with him and trust him and figure out what he means by what he means so that you can grow in wisdom, or you just pitch it and walk away. And that's the difference between belief and unbelief. And which is why in Christian faith, everything can rest on belief and unbelief. Right? Um, it's also true that love is shaped by the whole person both in God's character as he expresses himself, and in ours. Like, emotion's not enough to understand love, but neither is reason. Neither is morality. You can think through the morality of love, like what really is in the true good of John, of, you know, of John. And the, and the answer is, that's great. That's a part of love. You have to know what is in somebody's true good and what you ought to do. But that's not all of it. You have to care about it. You should really feel it. You should be passionate about it. You should love what is evil and hate 
Love what is, hate what is evil and love what is good. You should, like, it should do something inside of you, right? And also, you should be able to think through, like, what's right. And all those things, your will, what you, what you intend to do, your reason, what you understand, how things should function and how that applies to what you think is right relative to God's moral truths, and then how you feel and how there is energetic emotion both motivating and give you, giving you joy in what you do in love. And those are all supposed to flow together in a stream rather than fight each other horrifically. Like one of the ways to know that we're not yet like Jesus is when what we, by reason and morality, through God's revelation, know is wrong— we're angry about God saying that we want to do the other thing emotionally, right? We know we're not, we're not done with God because he's, when he's done with us, all these things will flow together as one. Our convictions, our will, our belief of what's right, our feelings and emotions surrounding it, and then the actions that we do will all be consummate. They'll be in union, in, in intimacy with each other inside of us. Does that make sense? This is also true when you look at um, a summary. So some people say, like, will say, love your neighbor as yourself is called the golden law by James. It's in the Bible a lot of times. That sounds like a good summary of the faith. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Okay, great. But you realize that, that when expansions can be summarized, some, the summaries still are rightly expanded. When Jesus says the whole law can be summarized and love your neighbor as yourself, does he summarize the law? Does he actually narrow down the law so that you don't have to obey all the 600 laws? Not really. He, he, by summarizing it, he actually expands it. You see, there's, there's like 600-something laws in the Torah, and he's like, listen, the whole Torah, all those 600 laws can be summarized just in love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What he's saying is all those 600 laws are just applications that God gave you of those two principles. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor's self. So, don't build—if you have a roof that's high, you should build a railing around it so people don't fall off it and die. That's like in the Bible. Some version of that. I can't remember the exact wording. Okay? If you have a bull that like gores people, you think he's—like you need to keep that bull like in a very safe fence or you need to kill it. Because if it gores somebody else, you're responsible. Right? What Jesus is saying is, what you do with your goring bull— is just an expression of love your neighbor as yourself. Because you don't want your neighbor keeping a goring bull in his backyard. So that every time you go out of your house, there's a bull trying to gore you. Maybe he gores your little, little puppy, you know, or something. And you're like, what the? How you can't do that. Now here's the problem. So all 600 of those laws are expressions of love your, love your neighbor as yourself. Are they the only possible expressions of the principle love your neighbor as yourself? And the answer is, of course not. So when Jesus says the whole law can be summarized in love your neighbor as yourself, is he saying that therefore instead of 600 laws, all you have to obey is one? No. What he's saying is all 600 of those laws are just the embodiment of one law that if we thought through it with reason and morality, we would see there could be 10,000 or 20,000 laws that could be made. And they might change slightly over time, but all would be expressions of love your neighbor as yourself. So even the summaries— are summarized to precede expansions. That's why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul can say, you don't, you're no longer under the law because you're under the law of love. He's not saying we're going to do less. What he's saying is we're going to do so much more. Because we will now do not everything the Bible commands us to do. We will do everything that the God of the Bible's love dictates. That's not a summary. 
That's not a simplification. That's not a brand. Right? Okay, sorry. This is also true, and, and this is in the book Substance I wrote a couple years ago, the chapter on sacrificial love. I'm not going to spend time on this here. But one of the ways to understand love is the company she keeps. Love is the, is the queen of the virtues. And so she, she does. Love is what dictates when humility is appropriate and when meekness is appropriate and when patience is appropriate. But those virtues all dictate what love is and means. And all these cannot be separated from each other. That's why Paul can always say, love is always patient. Love is always kind. Love is always not self-seeking. It's never rude, right? Love is the queen of the virtues, but she's always in union with the virtues. And therefore, as complex as the interrelationship of all the virtues with each other in proper portion at the exact time in which they're being applied. That's not brandable, y'all. Right? The second thing is, is that God is as pure as his will. You could listen to that first thing I said and, be, and think, man, I need to think a lot more carefully and morally. I need to use my reason and my moral faculties a lot more carefully to understand love. And we could do that. And we could be a terrible, awful, horrible church of Christians that don't look like Jesus at all. Right? There's something about the purity and passion of the love of God as it flows out of him. When theologians say that God is impassable, that is, he is not a God of passion, that doesn't mean that God doesn't care deeply. It means that God is not erratic in his emotions. He has divine consistency in what he cares about. Does that make sense? Um, how that relates to how God actually feels, we don't know. I don't know how emotions function in an infinite being. What we do know is that God reveals emotion as a communicable attribute. That there's a sense in which he loves and we can love. And he wants us to think that way. Now, maybe when we die and go to heaven and he explains more perfectly to us how his emotions function or something, if that even happens up there, I don't know what that'll mean about how different we are. But what I do know is this, is that God wants us to think of love relative to his love and our love and how they can be more like each other in their passion and in their purity. Does that make sense? So, um— if love is going to be restored in us spiritually, God is looking to restore not just our reason and our morality relative to love so that we really are committed to the true good of another. He wants that word devotion, the beauty of devotion in us to rise to be a white hot thing inside of us, right? You can think of Christianity in three parts, right? Theology, piety, and practice, right? Or service. So we, we believe what's true. We care about what's true and good. And we do what God says is good and true. And churches usually pick one of those. <laughs> At most, two. But it's kind of like deciding which four of the Ten Commandments you're going to obey. It, you know, it's not how it's supposed to go. God wants us to know the truth and that lead us to be passionate about the truth and about what's good in the world and then to do it. See, because if you're not passionate about the truth, think about this. If, if you aren't passionate about the truth, you don't believe the truth. Right? But if you aren't passionate about what you do, you're going to have dead duty, right? Like, if I say, listen, you all should serve in the blah, blah, blah ministry. Like, I, I want every one of you to serve once a month in the children's ministry. And you're like, okay, I guess Nick is telling us to do it, so it's probably true if you really thought that way, right? And then you're like, so I'm going to do it. Like, would we have a bunch of, like, really motivated children's volunteers? No. You'd be a bunch of deadbeats. You'd be like, well, here I am for my month, one month thing, right? No, we, like, we need passion. Like, I can't get into the church in the morning without Harold saying, Nick, 
because he's setting up tables for you to eat pastries off of, right? He's like, Nick, isn't it a beautiful day to worship God? We're going to eat here. It's great. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm like, this is great. I'm not used to being happy. You know, like, (laughs) but like this, like you're, we're supposed to, like we're supposed to like parent our kids and like do our work and talk to each other with passion, with love. And, and here's the thing, when we live in the flesh, all of those emotional parts of us are falling apart. That's why Paul calls it the flesh. Because it's like, it's so, you have to almost believe that he's talking about the thing that is almost like your, your own body. Right? It's like your, your, your sensuality, like what, what gives you goosebumps? What literally gives you goosebumps? You see, for some of you, if you went on a date with a new person and they touched you, you'd get goosebumps because it's exciting. New person, right? But if I preached the cross in a way that glorified the beauty of Jesus' loves for you, you wouldn't get goosebumps. Does that mean you're a bad person? That's not the question. Love isn't about me showing a mirror and telling you you're fantastic. The question is, what does it mean? And what, what matters is our sensibilities, our sensualities, our affections, our desires, our passions. As we love the truth and as we seek to practice love, all of those inner faculties in us get reordered towards the beauty of the truth, towards the true good of others, so that we can do them passionately. Because listen, you guys, it doesn't matter how wealthy we get as a society. The more, here's, what here's what's happening. The more wealthy we get as a society— the less loving we become. Because the more separated we get and the more consumeristic we become, and there is an inverse relationship between consumerism, not consumption necessarily, but consumerism. I want it my way. I don't want any further obligation to you after I I pay you. I want to then enjoy my thing, and you stay over there, and I have this privacy, and don't think that you can, right? It creates an inverse relationship of love. That's why—isn't it weird that as we've gotten richer, we've gotten more lonely? As we've gotten richer, we just abandon each other more. That's, that should be strange to us, right? Because the, the people are good principle, let me just hold up a mirror to you because you're already perfect, says the richer we get, the more money we have, the more leisure we have because we're already good. All the reasons why we don't live up to our internal goodness, all those external things that like keep us and hold us back, as we then have money to like dissipate those, we'll be better and better people. And it turns out we're not. God has to use his glory to so affect our understanding of love, not just to reason about it or theologize about it or to moralize about it, which are all absolutely necessary, but to then love what is theologically true. Then to love what is morally true because it's for the true good of others, and then we would do it with joy and passion so we wouldn't, in the words of the Bible, we wouldn't grow weary in doing good. Why does Paul say that? Don't grow weary in doing good. The reason he says it, he says, attend to your soul, attend to your passions and why we do things and why they are loving and make love. Listen, you have to, if you want to be a Christian and be fully human in what God wants to make you, you have to make the pleasures of love your primary life's pleasures. If your primary pleasures are laughing on things as you flip through them on your phone, you're like, ha ha ha, I love that. If, is that one of your primary pleasures? What, what's your itch? That like you want to, you want to, you want to feel better. What's your itch? Like what do you do? Do you eat? Do you watch stuff? Do you gossip about people? Do you, like what is it? Because to be a Christian, the opportunity to love another has to be the foundational pleasure. 
That can be the foundational pleasure of loving the other that is God, what we call worship. Just taking pleasure in taking pleasure in God. Is that like, when was the last time you didn't feel great and you were like, you know what, I need to get back to my foundational pleasure. I need to worship the Lord. I'm just going to stop. I'm going to pray. I'm going to think about the beauties of God, His glorious nature, His, His compassion for me, His love, His perfections, His multifaceted wisdom. And then you did that, and you felt great. And, and again, some of you think I'm attacking you. You think I'm saying that so that you'll think you're—you'll feel like a bad person. You'll do what I'm telling you to do. That's not why I'm telling you that. I'm telling you that there is a fountain of living water to, to soothe, comfort, and heal your soul, and to fill you with real emotion, and to help you not be weary in doing what's right, and what is your real duty, and to empower you in incredible ways. And it's right there. And so are these other image-bearing human beings. They're right there. They're all around you. Here they are. And is taking pleasure in them and taking pleasure in their true good your primary joy, your primary motivation? Because here's the thing. Nobody can, nobody can fire you from that. Nobody can empty your bank account away from that. Nobody can make your stock portfolio go down so that you lose that. Nobody can—solitary confinement is the close, closest we can come to that. We can put you in prison. We can move you to another place. We do almost anything to you. And if there's other image-bearing human beings, you can love them. And even if there wasn't, even if you were caught on a desert island, you could take—you could have compassion on a tortoise. You could love creation itself as a, as a creation of God, and you could praise God in worship, and you could care for His creation, and that would be love. I don't have time to get into macroeconomic theory and like work theory and all these things that are directly related to the Christian doctrine of love. Right? It says in Hebrews, Paul gets so angry at this church. He's like, listen, you guys, I wish I could teach you deeper things, but we don't have the simplest things straight yet, right? When we become a church that worships and loves, I'll preach about economics and the theology of economics and work in ways that we can't right now. Okay? Let me end with this. You might say, Nick, I come to this stupid church, and you make everything so just complicated. I don't know why everything has to be so complicated with you. Okay? Now, the good news is my wife is starting a support group. Okay? <laughs> That's not true. Um, here's what I want to tell you. The reason I do this for you is because you live in Madison. Most of you are highly educated. You think of yourself as smart and having high cognitive ability, and you want to understand stuff that you obey. Okay? You don't want to be told what to do. I know that because I pastor you. Okay? You're, you're like, you don't get told what to do most of you at work. Like, like, there are some churches where almost everybody in the congregation gets told what to do at work, and they don't get to decide what to do, and they just do it. And so the when the pastor goes, hey, we're going to do X, they just do it. It's weird, right? Um, at churches like ours, it doesn't work that way. I don't go, we're doing this. I go, what do you guys think about? And then I try to persuade you to do it, right? Because you want to know what you're doing before you do it, right? That's why I do this, okay? So there's good news and bad news. Okay, the good news is this. In all of our lives, there are things that we do that we do not understand. We just do them because we know that they're right. I do not know how my car works. I know how to make it go. That's why the Bible says that the precepts of the Lord 
make simple people wise, right? The not so smart, the not very educated, the not the sharpest knife in the drawer, the I haven't thought about— you might be like really smart in something else, but like not super smart theologically, right? Okay, great. You don't have to understand all this. If you would just read the scriptures, and if you would look at God's Christ, and you'd try to be like him, mediated through your own personality, but you try to be like him as much as you know how. It's that simple. It's just that simple. If you'll just—if you'll do what you're told, if you'll you'll believe God cares about you, he wants your true good, everything he's revealed to you is loving, for your true good and for the true good of others, you can just believe it. You don't have to actually know how it all works out, and you can just obey in love, and you can see how it works out as you walk through the lab that is life, and you will grow in love. And it, it doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. The reason why it's more complicated than that is because of our unbelief. We want to know why. We want to know how. How does it work? Well, what about this philosophy? Why can't I this? And why won't we this? And why won't I that? And so I have to preach like this. Because you want to complexify it, and it's a hundred times more complicated than you think it is, and that I think it is, and we think we're so smart, and we're really just hypocrites. Because when Jesus says to us, and I'll end with this, when Jesus says to us, um, love your neighbor— as yourself. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Do you know what we all do? We all do the ethics of why should I and shouldn't you? That's what we all do. Why should I have to have this obligation? Why should I have to be loyal in this sense? Why should I have to? But then would people behave like that towards us? Why should I be obligated to you? Why should I have to treat you in those ways? Right? You're, you go, well, why shouldn't you treat me like this? Shouldn't you treat me better? You see, we want to treat—we want to be treated as sacred— and we don't want to treat other people as sacred. That's why we don't love. That's why we come up with these nonsensical definitions of love that are ultimately meaningless, that produce cruelty and betrayal and abandonment. Because we want to create a functional definition for ourselves that we can be hypocritical about so that I can release myself from the obligations of love that will make a martyr out of me. And I can still demand of you fealty and loyalty and devotion and affirmation for me. And that's why Jesus says, if you want to believe this, you have to die. Because to treat other people the way you want to be treated when you know darn well, they're not going to treat you that way. Means you become their servant and you lose your right to have all the affirmations you want. And it says nowhere in the Bible that you should make sure everybody treats you right. And so you become the servant of the world, which is a death. And unless you are ready to die, you cannot love. But you can follow the one who died and rose from the dead. Who had so much joy and loving as his primary pleasure that he looked at the cross with scorn. That stupid cross. That's never going to stop me. That's what's available to us. Lord, um, please help us to take what we should from these truths. Please help us to see that love is both complicated when we want to argue with you about it, and you reveal enough of its complexity in Scripture to show us that we should be careful about what we think we can open our mouths about, and so much in Scripture about the wisdom of how you love so that we can grow in maturity in love so that it could have a beautiful complexity in us. But that also you give us a way, the, a way that makes the simple wise. 
that we could just trust you, just believe you, and love our neighbor as ourselves, and in doing so, find that we're walking in the Spirit, find that we're growing in virtue, find that we're growing in faith, seeing your multifaceted wisdom and worshiping you more freely. We pray that you'd help us to pursue the love of God, holy love, love that is beautiful devotion to the true good of another, and so participate in their redemption, participate in our own redemption, and to learn to see you as you really are. Help us to be different in a world where the word love is used to cover up abandonment and cruelty and profanity, and help us to learn to walk in the sacredness of loving others as you have made them objects of your sacred love. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.